Welcome to Content Disrupted, bold takes on brand marketing. I'm your host, Casey Noble, and together we'll explore what it takes to excel in brand marketing at one of the most exciting and disruptive times in industry history. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Content Disrupted, bold takes on brand marketing. Joining us today is Axel Kirschstetter, the Vice President of Global Product Marketing at Guidewire Software. Axel's a well-traveled, multilingual marketing and B2B SaaS expert who throughout his career has helped both startup and enterprise companies achieve category leadership, aggressive growth targets, and engineer successful exits. He's worked with major brands like Merrill Corporation, Datasite, TomTom, and Interlinks, and he's the recipient of multiple product marketing awards and somehow manages to run marathons, I believe, on the side. So, Axel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Casey. Great to be here. I really appreciate the welcome. I would love, before we dive in, if you can, you know, walk us a little bit through your career journey, just for the benefit of listeners. You know, how did you get into marketing? You've held lots of different roles. You've been in sort of like brand and communications, found your way into product marketing. How did you get to this point? My journey was a bit of a sort of conscious choices and accidents. Certainly when I started off in marketing, it was actually more business development and I was just doing different types of things that ended up formulating a sort of marketing function. Early days of the internet and uh, at that point, you know, I had experience in a technology that was quite unknown. So my skill set was quite in demand. My very first job setting up points of presence, internet service providers in Mexico, that led me to another job in the UK with a company I was trying to set up a internet service business. And I sort of fell into that niche of, well, you seem to know a few marketing type things. So why don't you do marketing for us in this general area? And as the company and product line grows and changes, do some comms work, do some product marketing work, do some, uh, for a while I was actually doing the best of relations, believe it or not. And so I just migrated through different things. But over time I realized I actually like the data aspect of marketing. I'm I'm a bit of a sort of, you know, rational guy and I gravitated to numbers, ICP definition, TAM, market sizing, some of the strategic elements. And um, good fit for that was product marketing. I got burnt over some of the softer aspects around, you know, PR and some of the heavy opinions that you can deal with in marketing. I was like, I'm, I'm done with this. So I ended up migrating towards more the analytical side of things. And I really found a home in there. And product marketing is sort of a nice way to combine a bit of creativity. You still have to have ideas, bring ideas to the table on how you can think about a product, how you can think about addressing your audience, but then also, you know, sticking to some of the hard facts in terms of what is real and what's stretching the imagination. And so I'd say initially I sort of fell into it, but then after liking that rational aspect, I just kept seeking out those type of roles different companies, different environments. I love the idea of, you know, you, in the intro, smaller companies and the fast dynamics that you have to have every three, four months, you got to look again, do we have money? And you got to adjust uh, the way you operate, bigger companies, annual budgets. If it doesn't make it into the annual budget, you got to wait for that 12 months before any changes happen. So just just a different way to operate and think. And I find that applying my, my craft in different size companies, growth stages, really interesting. Let's talk about the the digital landscape such as it is. We have seen a major acceleration, sort of what I think of as 
the buyer-driven experience or the need for a more buyer-driven experience. People are interested in, you know, self-directed research. They want to be in control of their, let's say, content experience or research experience. And a lot of the sales process happens independently now. So how is a, as a product marketer, do you think about, or marketer in general, do you think about how we need to adjust content for that reality, given this historical mix of, okay, we've got thought leadership initiatives, we've got like our brand content product marketing is over here as its separate thing. And it seems like now everything sort of blends into a general content experience. So do we need to change how we think about almost content as product? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. My background B2B, one thing I've noticed is you're kind of stuck with open rates, conversion rates at a, at a certain level. Uh, no matter what you try, it doesn't really move the needle in terms of people viewing more, reading more, sharing more, and the sort of dominant definitions of successful content activities that maybe were around five years ago. A lot of that is down to, indeed, to your point, buyers now you know choose the buying journey. So the the linear buying journey of awareness through through completion through sale. That doesn't work anymore. People come into the funnel at any point, they leave the funnel at any point. And so it's become really tricky to work out what content to serve at what stages. That being said, you still need to have a go through sort of, you know, higher funnel awareness type of content of you don't need to tell people about your solution yet until they've understood what the problem is. So I think where a shift is beginning to occur is that those brands, B2B, B2C, who are a bit more credible are the ones that lead with educational, informational, insights-driven content. Can be short form, can be long form, doesn't matter, can be text, can be audio, but you have to have some kind of point of view that's unbiased. And in some ways, I'm not quite there to advocate it yet, but in some ways, it's okay to talk about your competitor. You know, one of the things that I always like to do when I speak with vendors is, and, and they're pitching me is, okay, understand what you do. Who do you compete with? So that I have a, you know, my mind, I mean, it, for me, it does two things. One, can I trust the person, you know, because if, if they're going to be buying from them, I'd like to know like, what else do I need to be thinking about? But then above all, do I understand the category that you belong to? And if you belong to a category, you should be able to educate me of who else plays in it. And, and then, you know, next question is how are you different from them? Vendors who are uncomfortable with that, look, I can go to Gartner, Forrester, G2 Crowd, others, and find out who the competitors are. Uh, so it's not exactly a hidden secret anymore, but it does facilitate that. To me, it's insights-driven selling and marketing that needs to, uh, needs to lead. You brought up the concept prior to us, you know, coming on the show of, of the need to set up a kind of just-in-time content operation. And that seems very tied to what you're talking about in terms of matching content to intent and then bringing that all together with the way that you're presenting content, putting content into the experience, thinking about the content experience and merchandising, if you will. So can you just explain a little bit to listeners what your concept of a just-in-time content operation looks like and, and kind of what's driving the need for that? There's sort of two aspects to that word. There's the just-in-time and then content operation. Let me deep dive into those, but before I do that, 
let me try to set again the, the scene in terms of the problem where, it, where it's coming from. Content departments, if you have one, always struggle to justify what do they do? What's the value that they provide? You have too many individuals, executives are requesting content for these micro purposes, micro needs, and you're also a little unsure of where does it fit? What does it do? Heavy opinions um, on what works, what doesn't. You know, I quite often hear, yeah, we tried that, whatever, five years ago, and it didn't work back then. Well, but things change. Our audience changed. Things change. And so you have to deal with, with a lot of these opinions. We talked about, you know, the challenge of formats and image rights and sound rights, depending on what you're trying to do. And then we touched on it briefly, but again, to just double down on this, content purpose in terms of what content does, I think there's sort of three areas to think about. Insights at the top of the funnel in terms of everybody wants to learn something, you know, when you leave a buying situation and you've learned something, you, you just feel good about where things are at. As you go further down the funnel, you, you do need to think about getting help from your vendor. So, so, you know, what questions am I not asking? How do I think about implementation, whatever you have? Uh, and then towards the tail end, you know, it's really like, where am I your guinea pig? Have others done this before? So that reassurance. And so what's the common thread amongst all of that? It really is a consistency around data, around points of view, around quotes, around a knowledge library of, of content information. And so the just-in-time means you do need to figure out how do you obtain that relevant information on tap via audience insights. So that's, that's one aspect, creating your audience and engaging with that audience for that content, which you can then uh, turn back into you know, various uh, marketing assets. And then the other aspect in that sort of JITCO, just-in-time content operations, really focusing on the content operation. There are technical elements to operating content with quality. You still need to go through your quality checks, your referenceability. You got to be thinking about how do I tag things? What was the source? Where did it come from? Especially when you get into the realm of statistics and data, is it statistically relevant or is it just a pulse check, a you know, higher level pulse that you sent out and asked people what they thought? So you got to have an operation to manage that content behind it irrespective of once it goes into workflow and creators get their hands on it and create something with that content. So the key is really just in time, having an ability to plug into an audience and then combine that with a content operation that can stream it out. And so, so much of this hinges on audience identification and having the right understanding of who your buyer is or who's involved in that decision-making process, who does your buyer need to answer to, who's signing the check, who's doing the research. How do you approach audience identification, buyer personas, and ensuring that you're targeting the right folks so that you can build an infrastructure around messaging that's relevant to them? The buyer persona challenge is, is also really, really tricky because it depends on the type of product you have and sort of, uh, you know, um, smaller companies or really the products that represent lower volume, lower monetary value. You probably have a person who's buying a tool. But as you go and sell to companies, things start getting a little bit more complicated because you're, you're dealing with a buying center that's usually made up of multiple personas. Um, even when you have you know, think of something like in departmental sales, you want to sell something to the marketing department, the higher up you get, the less likely you are to actually decide on the purchase. Yes, you have this sort of checkbook, but you're not using the tool on a day-to-day -day basis. 
your, your team uses it on a day-to-day basis. So the classical buy a persona message, the message for the CMO, great, except that the CMO never uses it. And the biggest challenge in B2B acquisition is you have to use the stuff in order to obtain value out of it. If after you know three, six months, nobody uses it, it's gone. You, you just stop using it. And so the real buyer is actually that combination between buyer, checkbook, and user who's going to be benefiting from the, the value that, in my case, you know, I do a lot of software that the software provides you with. And this is where quite often there's a disconnect between user experience research and buyer research or the buyer messaging. And you really need to start to come much more together with a view also of within a buying center, who's sort of influencer, who is, you know, supportive and decision maker to tell a more holistic story. And quite often what I see when I see buying persona overviews, very high level and not really going to the depth of what does the day-to-day look like? What do they read? What do they think? What do they how do they interrelate with other members of that sort of buying persona, buying a group entity that ultimately you're trying to uh, you're trying to engage with? Yeah, I think it's so important the point of connecting the buyer experience post purchase with then the customer experience, right? Which is where I think of content as almost an extension of product. Is how can you expect to retain customers if you're not continuing to educate them? even after they've, you know, invested in your product and started using it, whether it's educating them about new ways to derive value, new products, launches, and and making them aware of that in a way that's contextually relevant. It doesn't feel like you're just saying like, hey, check out this new feature we've got, but really put it into the context of what their business is doing. So are there any specific examples of how you've sort of connected that content journey um, within Guidewire or other brands, what infrastructures are you putting in place? What tools are you using? Yeah, so my own best implementation of this sort of, you know, just-in-time content was probably uh, when I worked at uh, Deosite and I had a standalone content responsibility. Uh, Deosite is uh, software for the uh, M&A, for M&A participants. And in there, it's all about trends. It's all about what's happening, what's sort of the latest and greatest um, in some ways, it's kind of like fashion, you know, what are the latest trends? Instead of clothes, you worry about uh, stocks and, and, and equities, what have you. We needed to build an audience. Uh, the brand was reasonably well recognized. We just needed to tap in and activate that brand a lot more. There was a formal process to invite people to participate being an audience. Uh, that also includes curating the audience in terms of incentives, you know, uh, hey, we'd like to get your opinion on stuff, so give us some, some feedback. Uh, I think one thing that's a little bit under the radar is... You do have to think about output as well. And so in order to to run a sort of smooth machine, what are your brand standards? Like I see quite often, especially infographics and and, and sort of uh, social pieces, they get made in an ad hoc manner. Hey, I have an idea, let's, let's create something. But you really need to predefine, if we say infographic, what do we want it to look like? And then you plug in the data points or the, the, the sort of story down that you have into that. And obviously there's always that challenge between does content inform design or does design inform content? It, it does have to be a little bit of both and you do need to think about what the output uh, could, could look like. We already talked about sort of, you know, some of the tagging technologies and, and validation processes, workflow automation, and then, and, but yeah, there's a healthy amount of planning that goes into it to, uh, to set it up, but it's ultimately, anyone can do it. This is not a 
you know, it's not a million dollar investment that's required. It's more uh, a process and a way to uh, to think and operate versus a sort of standalone tool set. And how are you sort of engineering that internally and driving that kind of shift in thinking from a resource perspective in terms of organizing teams so that there's this really dialed in planning that's happening and the follow through with the, you know, metadata management and tagging. And do you have teams that are handling content working really closely with the teams handling backend management and delivery? How are you keeping those functions really closely tied together? I think this is standard management practice, to be honest. You got to provide people with a strong vision, purpose, uh, have sort of milestones in place. And then also, yeah, I'm a strong believer in this. You, you got to, you know, if you want to change big things, you got to accept failure. And, um, you know, mistakes in terms of uh, how things get represented and in terms of sort of completeness of, of vision. And as long as you create the right, the right cultural environment where that becomes accepted, you should be on an okay path. The other thing that, you know, I also did when I sort of initially started this thinking is kind of designed the journey, a theoretical journey. If you believe in design thinking, you got to show what it looks like. And so showing how the setup could be, how the design of a, of a survey of an audience uh, panel uh, could look like, it really helps people visualize the, um, the ask. And um, it didn't actually occur to me back then. It's been more of a recent insight for myself. But as I've been playing this in my own head in terms of what this just-in-time content operation is, I've kind of begun to, to associate it somewhat with somewhat of the fast fashion type of world, where essentially you have to have an operating entity in terms of quickly printing, producing clothes that takes it from, from catwalk to, to a high street store. And what you're selling is trends. What you're selling is, look what's cool, what's hip. But what really makes a difference is that fast turnaround from one thing to the next. And, um, you know, we have a, a visual, a parallel of where some of this can happen in a different environment. It helps understand this is not like, you know, rocket science. This is something that, that we do just in a, in, a, in a different way. And how are you tracking from a data perspective, collecting buyer data in order to get that, you know, just-in-time content right, right? To know what trend you need to be creating content around. So putting aside for a second, the ability to execute really quickly at speed with precision, how do you know what your focus should be in the first place on an ongoing basis? Yeah, this is where that that uh, industry knowledge that does have to come in. This is where you, you, you do have to have a baseline of what environment you operate in, what, what sort of is hot, what is not. That's going to be a challenge. But put it this way, the output is not that difficult. A couple of weeks ago, there was a study by, I believe, Boston Consulting Group, where they compared AI usage, so, so uh, or content production with or without AI, and they sort of had a measure of speed and quality. And it turns out on, on both fronts, both speed and the quality uh, was higher when using AI. The comparison they used, it, very simple data points. It wasn't very sophisticated. But they obtained a huge amount of coverage in the media off the back of a, I think they would have, they probably compared, I think it was like 12 or 14 people and, and, and a very simple data set that they utilized. This is not a very difficult study to, to conduct. 
but they had a clear vision. The thesis was AI, poor quality, so is it impacting the quality and in, in a marketing sense, therefore the brand? And you kind of had a hunch that it can probably substitute, duplicate some of the uh, work that people are doing. So, so it does allow us to work faster. And it turns out faster, yes, but quality is not impacted. So there is kind of a win-win. And then obviously in between us, but you do have to spend a little bit of time navigating the waters to figure out, you know, how to tune the model, how to tune your questions. And that's sort of the net new skill that someone will have to acquire over the next couple of uh, months and years. Right. I think that that's really interesting because that's actually something our company has shifted into is AI-powered content atomization specifically. So I think it lends itself well to what you were talking about, getting that speed. If you have sort of a content blueprint and you were talking about, you know, form and function, um, you've got your sort of branded templates for these are the flavors of let's say infographic we do or the type of study that we know this is how our, our audiences want to digest this information, then you can take a core piece of content, maybe human generated, high quality, but iterate on that really quickly, atomize it, leveraging, you know, the right AI prompts, and then quickly create basically an, an entire customer journey's worth of content kind of, you know, flowing from one you know, major anchor assets. So atomization strategy has been around forever, but there's this sort of new angle with AI on how to execute that with much more precision. One thing that's still required though is the baseline of having insight as to what pain points users have, what what is sort of the the challenge that they're not able to resolve with manual means or the current way of doing things. And then once you have that quantified, then you can go to that uh, atomization, uh, content uh, diversification, uh, as you just described. And that makes me curious about if you have a favorite messaging framework that you use when you're thinking about long-term, high-level brand messaging and purpose, and then all of the outflows from that and how you're structuring that when you're coming up with your messaging, where then you can trigger some like real-time, timely interactions and conversations off of it. Yeah, when contrasting long-term and short-term, and I'm beginning to be believing this more and more, long-term, you can't mess around with your, your, the, the purpose in your positioning. The essence of who are we, what contribution do we make to wider society? And um, what I see quite often with companies is that they keep fiddling with this sort of purpose around every two years or there's a new president, CEO, there's a new you know, head of sales coming in. That's a mistake. Uh, you you got to have that, that consistency of purpose that transcends people, that transcends you know, chapters and timeframes. Difficult to, to get there, so, so to have that purpose clarity. But um, once you have it, once it's understood, once it's documented, once it's annually refined and repeated, once you, know, you hire board members to in support of that purpose, once they hire executive or check in with executive values on that purpose, uh, there's sort of a cultural wave that, that you know, um, means what the company stands for. And then you can adjust the messaging to support that positioning. I think this is always where the, the confusion comes in. Messaging is temporary. Positioning is, I don't want to say permanent, but longer terms. And yes, you can adjust your positioning. For sure, you have to over time. But messaging 
is something that you can do. You can run a, a you know campaign program for six nine months on on a on a topical area, but don't mess around with your positioning. Those two things are not quite the same. And I think where a lot of executives and a lot of companies uh, struggle with is how do you live your purpose? How do you live your values? Yet at the same time, allow yourself to to dabble, experiment with different elements uh, of messaging in market. So what are your best practices for ensuring you've got the right positioning down so that you're not shifting every six months? Because we see this all the time as well. So you, you got to have a clarity which market you operate in, which problems you solve. Uh, this is always a challenge when, you know, Companies who create a category tend to do better and so forth. But really, you don't create categories. Analysts and influencers do. What you do is you solve a problem. And if you're clear about the impact of that problem, when you think of Uber, for example, right? when, when they sort of, they did not solve the problem of having people, helping people drive from point A to point B, that existed before. But they solved the problem of having anyone being able to drive a taxi and reducing the the sort of service uh, fearfulness of what it means to to jump into a taxi. And so you need to be clear as to what market you operate. And then you know, uh, just because you have product doesn't mean that that's the problem that you solve for. So you do have to check in with your audience, early adopters or whatever, what, what do we do or what problems are solved for you and make sure that what you think you're solving is actually resonating with them as well. That's quite often where you run into that challenge of, I thought we were solving this problem, but you're telling me we're actually doing this. And that's sort of, a, you got to bridge those two to come to a common ground. I'm not a firm believer in supply or demand is sort of the two have to come together. And then you have your 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 pillars to your brand in terms of what do we believe in and what do we, you know, do we stand for? And then the sort of third element part of that is your proof points, you know, in terms of volume of people that you've helped, patterns that you have, or whatever sort of in the specifics makes sense to uh, to talk about. Yeah, one of my favorite frameworks, I'm sure you're familiar with Clayton Christensen and the jobs to be done kind of framework. And I that resonates so much, I think, with getting your positioning right is there shouldn't be those surprises. You really ma- need to make sure you understand the jobs to be done. And to your previous point, I think, you know, being able to recognize the relationships between those users and their jobs to be done and then the buyers, their jobs to be done and the teams that surround those folks. I like jobs to be done. It's a good, it's a good, powerful framework. Yeah, it's so practical <laughs> and seems so obvious in a way. But I think somewhere along the way, some marketers have lost sight of like the practicality and the importance of the utility of content, where we sort of swung from big brand advertising into really precise performance marketing. And now we're seeing kind of a swing back, I think, to building brand and thought leadership. But there's always been that that underlying truth that information has value and it's it's a key function of I think any brand, any organization, and certainly of marketing in general. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about performance metrics that you're measuring, KPIs have evolved over time and with this idea of a just-in-time content operation, which is obviously impacting efficiency, should be reducing content waste in a way. But what other metrics are you looking at in implementing the operation? I think there's there's sort of two elements. Content production in the sense of 
do I have the right, so, so, uh, by that I mean, do I have the right input quality to produce content in the first place? You know, one thing that's always behind the scene, especially now with AI, is also quality of content. So a, a brand that regurgitates, you know, unqualified, unsort of investigated information, it impacts their brand negatively. So you do have to make sure that when you say, this is where the market is at, what have you, you can back that up. And you do have to have a sense of sensibility from, if you say, you know, uh, the market wants whatever X, based on asking 20 people, it's not exactly statistically significant. But can you say, we, we you know, like a little social thing based on our poll, whatever, 80% said this? Sure. You know, so you, you got to have mental clarity as to what the quality of your input is. Uh, if you have done a survey with a thousand people, that is quality input. So that's, that's at the input level. At the output level, there's still sort of that, you know, uh, uh, how big is your database? Uh, what's the freshness of the database? How is the engagement levels open, shared, et cetera? But nowadays, the only thing I'm really interested in is shared, open, engaged, and especially on the, on the uh, inbound front, in your target audience. So um, when you apply sort of a account-based notion on top of that, it's great to say, you know, your website was visited by 10,000 people. Are they in my target audience? Because otherwise it makes absolutely no difference. And in this case, target audience means I'm after 10 accounts and great, you know, if 10,000 visits your website, 50% comes from your target accounts, well done. <laughs> you know? But if it's, if it's uh, you know, 500, then you're sort of missing the mark because there's a lot of investment that goes into making this happen from creating content, from utilizing it. And actually that, that you know, uh, it mightn't sound like a lot, but now you're required working with sales, working with your inside sales, BDR departments, what have you, who are you going after? And, and that changed over time as well, as you qualify people in, qualified out. It requires that sort of, you know, syncing up with other departments, which... Quite often, it's easier to just say, did I do a survey? Yes. Did I do a webinar? Yes. Did I send out an infographic? Yes. Great. Job done. The classic checkboxes. So you mentioned, you know, the importance, I think, of expertise and even generating your own reliable market data, you know, being a leader in your industry, being a master of your industry, being able to guide your customers. And some of that is, is you're having your own proprietary data that you're able to present rather than relying on others. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about how AI and the rise of people for right or wrong using tools like ChatGPT and, and not realizing the limitations of, at least with that particular tool, you know, the data set behind it or the data that's been used to train it and sort of turning to AI for expertise. How is that going to transform where brands need to fit in that equation? And, and do you think it'll undermine the trustworthiness of data or cause people to kind of bypass brand-centric expertise? That's a big challenge in the industry, right? I do think I'm a I'm a big believer, user, whatever of of AI tools to augment and accelerate the work that I do, uh, that I encourage my team to to do as well. But I'm also very clear as to truthfulness, accuracy, and proprietary ownership of uh, of data. When Salesforce says, you know, whatever, this is the data running through our systems, and therefore this is where the market is at, and and so forth, you assume automatically it has quality. Now, I wouldn't expect them to give that to ChatGPT or others, OpenAI, um, because it's their proprietary data. There is in the in the legal space, there is only really sort of three companies who kind of have 
all of the case law in the US. So they, they have all of the cases of everything that's always been done through the courts. They've documented and so forth. And so it makes absolutely no sense for them to give that to OpenAI to read freely because otherwise their case law is, is readable. But you can be absolutely assured that they're building out their own, uh, it's going to be LLM, LLM, large language model for the legal uh, uh, practices, because that's where ultimately people will be wanting to pay money for. And at that point, you know, unless you're a super specialized lawyer, you're going to be running into some problems because why would someone pay you as a lawyer when all that is codified via a, uh, a bot? So critical to have your own data, critical to have your own knowledge base. And then your other aspect of that is once you have it, how do you activate it into, you know, monetizable content directly or indirectly? And what other trends, you know, looking forward, are you tracking? What's on the horizon that you as a business leader are thinking about or concerned about moving forward? Yeah, for sure. It's that AI element. It's also how AI is going to impact talent. What are the new skills that you need to look for in terms of currently have staff and they can be complemented with AI. And I think as you fast forward, and again, I don't know time frame a year, two years, you kind of need to start thinking differently. What staff do I need to have to augment what I can do already do with AI? And here, the challenge that you're going to run into is, it's kind of what we discussed around, well, how do you know what is true, what isn't? How do you know what questions to ask in the first place? That requires a little bit of knowledge, bit of background. And, you know, if you apply this to the, to the wider society context, yeah, I mean, I'm a little concerned how younger generations will be able to pick up on this sort of common knowledge, instinctive knowledge, and uh, what it means for uh, what it means for society in a, in a larger context. But work-wise, where you know my head is at, for sure, you got to figure out how to integrate AI into your processes, and then work out, you know, as you build teams, as you build uh, uh, objectives, how do you how, how do tools fit into those, and how do how do people help those tools to be to be used successfully? Because it is going to be difficult to figure out. You know, what data can I use? Can't I use? What is accurate? What is inaccurate? Um, what is this sort of creative output that we want to have? You got to think about all of these process things and then have people to participate in that and or at a more senior level, obviously, to create those processes in the first place. I appreciate all of your thoughts on what the future looks like from a content marketing perspective, building a, a more buyer-driven experience and a just-in-time content operation. If I can keep you for just a couple more minutes, I would love to run you through a quick speed round just for fun. So ask you a few questions and you just give me your top of mind response. I suck at speed rounds, but um, <laughs> might as well have fun. This is the fun part. Yeah, just first thing that comes to mind. So... As a marketer, you kind of touched on this before, but as a marketer, what keeps you up at night? Usually it's nothing work-related. It's a bit more personal, but the spirit of the message, yeah, I am, you know, uh, wide awake around the sort of impact of AI tools. And we talked about it at, uh, at length here and what it means to, to operate successfully. I think this is a huge game changer. And uh, if you're not constantly thinking about how do you justify what you do, when tools can do what I do, what my team does in a very effective manner, then you're not sort of fully alert in terms of what's happening around you. And what keeps you going? 
I am one of those people. I have a natural amount of drive and, and energy. Not sure it comes across, but uh, I, I sort of wake up and go. And ultimately, it's a combination of uh, uh, wanting to commercialize. I'm not a salesperson, but I, I like dealing with customers, partners. I like dealing with people. And to me, it's really the not the challenge, the the playfulness, the engagement with the market at large, having that intellectual dialogue and then acting up on those little hints. You gave me a few little hints that I'm going to do a little bit of dig, a bit of research on just in this discussion. That's what keeps me motivated and going. Whenever I see something in the news or read something, I go online, what does this mean and sort of what is it all about? Because I'm constantly trying to learn and trying to improve uh, my own knowledge base. I love that. I feel like it's rigor is so important. That's kind of how I, I think about it is just like a rigorous approach to learning and understanding because there's so many tools and AI being one of them. We know from experience that there's rarely, if ever, you know, silver bullets in marketing, right? There's the hard work and thinking that has to be done. So I love that that's something that reinvigorates you is just that desire to be intellectually rigorous. Rigor and curiosity. I think that's one of the, the words that I heavily gravitate to nowadays. Also, when I interview people, are you curious? You know, there's nothing like someone comes into an interview who's done their research about you, heard you on a podcast, uh, you had this perspective, and that really sort of engages you because they're curious. Right. And if we go full circle, you've really described throughout this conversation the importance of being a curious brand, right? Like that's really at the core of mastering your market, that being curious about your audience. That never ends. And as soon as you you lose that edge, you're sort of, that's where growth ends. You'll be but, in trouble. <laughs> exactly. So what marketing term do you love? Audience. Kind of fits into this, but... It used to be buyers and, and prospects and, and sort of customers, but I think nowadays no one is buying from you as such just because you have a good message, even a perfect product. But you're on the right path if you have an audience that is listening. What marketing term on the flip side do you hate? Let's see, probably in the digital area, SEO optimized. I, I, don't, I don't know what that means anymore. Um, optimized what? To, to sort of... A, a Google trending term that has nothing to do with you, uh, that's trending, so you're, you're you know, siphoning off some traffic that you'll need. SEO optimization specialists where organic and paid always needs to come together. It's like, oh, it's sort of a never-ending nightmare of what, what exactly does you know, SEO optimize mean? You, Great, we got the title tag fixed. Okay, show me the H1 tag. What's H1? Okay. Right. And I feel like SEO is coming back into the forefront of some conversations we're having with clients now. And I think because of with AI, so much about search experience is potentially changing and people are sort of like scrambling. But also your point about qualified audience, right? Suddenly people are realizing it's like before it was, you know, showing up for a million different terms and sort of, you know, turning the floodlights on. And now it's about matching intent in really smart ways. And that sort of changes the game. Intent. Keyword there, intent. Yep. Love it. What emoji best describes the current state of marketing? I think it would be probably a sort of hopeful question mark type of an emoji. I think my sense is, when I talk to fellow marketers, I think there is a degree of optimism and positivity out there. Marketing has gotten hard, but I think selling has gotten even harder uh, because of the choices, the availability of choice. 
Um, and so that's that's sort of the positive. And then question mark is around that AI thing. Like what exactly does that mean for us? But yeah, so I, I don't, visually, I don't know what that would look like, but sort of, I don't know, sunshine type of a smiley thing. And then maybe a little question mark on the side. <laughs> I love it. I think you've just invented a new emoji. So that's cool. We we need that one, clearly. <laughs> and then finally, the age-old debate, quality or quantity? Oh, boy. We started off by my title, product marketing. Um, and when people ask me, how do you measure product marketing? I always try to distinguish between metrics that you influence, that you can report up on, versus metrics that you own, own outright. And when it comes to outright ownership, I can't move away from it. It sounds very old school, but I can't move away from it. It's content produced, and it's not the quantity, it's the quality measured by content consumed. Content produced, content consumed. And so to answer your question, it's a mix of the two. So you're using measuring quality in large part by if it's being consumed, then it has value. And do you think of that as like internal consumption as well as audience consumption in equal measure? Absolutely. So it's quite often what happens, obviously, when 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 you have a channel and you push out, actively push out a piece of content through an email, and obviously you're gonna have a lot of downloads. And, and so you can have an imbalance of your demand team say, oh, look at this downloads, we've got to have more of this content. And sure, that that is correct. But if you activate a different type of channel, you might have different type of results. And so part of the, the role of the content producer is also to make sure that they go out to the various channels and advertise their content. It's almost like channel activation of content. And that takes time. And so, and that time is going to be time not spent on yet another piece of content. So on the quantity, it's like, well, you're better off producing one piece of quality, which makes your job of activating it through the various channels that you need to serve a lot easier than producing 10 poor quality contents that no one across the channel is going to use. So that's kind of the, the time trade-off that you need to make. Content produced, great. You can spend a lot of time on that. But if no one uses it, then it's a waste of time. Likewise, if you only have one piece that it's only activated in one channel, then you have, you know, uh, you're, you're falling short on the activating other channels that you have available. And you have to find the balance by making sure that whatever you produce, you reach out to the people, you explain what it is, you go to your PR team, you go to your demand generation group, you go to your whatever other teams you have to explain to them the value, the insight, the purpose, and so forth. That's effort, that's time. So it is that fine balance between, yes, you got to have quantity, because I can assure you, how many blogs did you produce in this year? One? It's <laughs> a problem. Irrespective <laughs> of how good that blog is. But if you can say, you know, whatever, three, four blogs and look look how much, how, how popular they were, how consumed they were and brand awareness and this and that, great. You know, it's, it's fine. I love the simplicity of that and the practicality, content produced, content consumed. Thank you so much, Axel. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Let's keep in touch and hopefully have you back on another time in the near future. Casey, thank you so much. Love the conversation. It's really nice to have someone so engaged in the topic. Um, you're not just an interviewer, so to speak. You're actually a dialogue partner, which I, I really appreciate when doing a quality podcast. It's a pleasure to get to exchange ideas with you. Thank you. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to Content Disrupted, brought to you by Skyward. Stay up to date on the latest ideas and insights in brand building and content marketing by visiting our website at skyward.com. Join us for our next episode, where we'll continue to challenge marketing norms and inspire you with fresh strategies for growing business through brand storytelling. See you there.